Let's start out in a word of prayer. How can it be, O Lord, that you would choose a people like us? We who were the nobodies, the nothings, the unimportant ones, the one that nobody would choose if given the choice. And yet you have set your love upon us. How could we respond except with thankfulness and service? As we approach your word, help us by giving us minds to understand the things that are laid out before us in this text. Help us to grasp the depth of your love for us and the breadth of the implications that this text has upon not merely our own personal lives, but also upon the entire world. Thank you for your word. Help us by your spirit to understand it now. In your name we pray. Amen. You can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. And we're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 12 through 22, the last portion of the chapter. Deuteronomy in our household is affectionately known as Deuteronomy uh, due to our children's inability to say it yet, but we'll get there. And I like to just, I'd like to just start out by reading the text through. This will be the only inspired portion of this sermon. Deuteronomy chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. Moses says this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. And yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing." Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. You shall hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. What a text. It's easy to preach preaching. And this text that stands before us has the depths of wisdom that match the breadth of its implications. This text is deep. It speaks of the love of God 
Love to God and obedience to God by obeying his law. It speaks of, therefore, the nature of obedience. It speaks of God's identity as the creator of the universe, the one who created and therefore possesses heaven and the highest heaven, earth, and everything that it contains. It teaches us about God's gracious choice of an undeserving people. It tells of the unfathomable love of God as he marshals all of his omnipotent strength for the good of his people. It speaks of regeneration, the miracle of God by which he gives his people, by his free grace, the ability to respond and obey his law. It declares the majesty of God by saying that he is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. It rehearses his justice, his compassion, his mercy, his all-sufficiency, and so on and so forth. This text is deep. But this text is not only deep, it is also wide. It reaches back and it touches the creation story, showing us that the God who creates everything and therefore owns everything is in the business of restoring everything. It reaches back also and touches the promises of Abraham, which he made so many hundreds of years before this text was written for the purpose of showing us that God is in the process of blessing all the nations of the world through Abraham and his seed. It speaks of the necessity which relies upon the nation of Israel to obey the commandments of God as the mechanism which would bring about this blessing to the whole world. And yet it also speaks of Israel's drastic insufficiency to do so. They cannot obey, and therefore it looks forward into the future and anticipates the day when God himself will circumcise the heart of Israel that they may love the Lord their God with all their heart and thereby keep his commandments and bring restoration and blessing to the whole world. This text is deep and it is wide. It reaches deep into the plan and character of God and spreads as far as to the entire world. Now the message of this passage and indeed of the entire book of Deuteronomy is deeply tied to what's happening in the nation of Israel at this point in history. Most of us know the story quite well. Israel has been delivered by God from slavery from the nation of Egypt. God did many great and terrifying signs and wonders. He led them through the Red Sea, parted the sea for them, judged Egypt on the way out by flooding them and drowning their entire army, He led them through the wilderness to a mountain called Sinai, where he gave them ten commandments. Now, those ten commandments came with these words as their preface. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And the key word in that text is the word if. If you keep the commandments, you will be my treasured people. 
God delivered Israel for the very purpose of setting them apart as a nation and as the vessel which would then bring blessing to the entire world. But that blessing relied upon whether or not Israel would keep the law. It would only happen if they obeyed. And of course, we know the snag in the story. Israel just can't seem to do that. They disobey God regarding how to gather the manna. They test the Lord. They create a giant golden cow, an idol whom they, which they worship in the place of God as an image. Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire on the altar. They demand meat instead of manna because they're complainers and they get quail with a heaping, steaming side of judgment. Miriam and Aaron attempt a mutiny against Moses. The people refuse to go in and conquer the land when they're told to do so. And then when God says, okay, we're not going to conquer the land with this generation, but with the next generation, they say, okay, sorry, just kidding, we'll go. And they lose. It seems like whatever God tells them to do, they do the opposite. All in all, Israel just can't seem to keep it together, and this is exactly Moses' point in this portion of Deuteronomy. And it extends from the beginning of chapter 9, and it ends all the way at the end of chapter 11, and his point is quite simple. You guys are literally the worst. Look with me, chapter 9, verse 5. Just a few examples. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess your land. It's not because of your righteousness. Why? You don't have any. The next verse, verse 6. Now therefore that the Lord, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Verse 13, And the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Verse 22 and following, At Terabah also, and at Massah, and at Kiribath Hatavah, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. You guys are literally the worst. Moses wants them to know this one thing exceedingly clearly. Just because there's a new generation of Israelites does not mean that the problem has been solved. This will be a perennial problem. And yet in spite of all of this, look with me, Deuteronomy 10.10, he says this, Yet the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. The Lord was unwilling to destroy to destroy you. And so he continually holds out his hands, as it were, and pleads with the nation of Israel time and time again, setting a pattern that would last their entire history, and even to this day, pleading with them to repent. He exhorts them to change. And that is what this text is. 
It is a plea. It is an exhortation filled with motivations and reasons and theology and trying to motivate them to say, you must change, Israel. You must change because everything hangs on it. And for Israel to change, one thing needs to be supplied, which they lack. And that is complete and total devotion to their God. Complete and total devotion to their God. And that is the thrust of this passage. If we are to obey our Lord, we must be completely and totally devoted to him. If we are to obey the Lord our God, we must be completely, pervasively, all-encompassingly devoted to the Lord our God. We're going to unfold this passage in four points here, and the first is found in verses 12 and 13. And it answers the question of what does it really mean to be totally devoted to the God. It is the necessary prerequisite of total devotion, the necessary prerequisite of total devotion in verses 12 and 13. Notice first that Moses summarizes the entire law in this one constellation of of concepts. In, In the words, he says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? When you boil it all down, this is what he's asked. He's trying to say, bottom line, this is the one thing that has always mattered most. God has only ever asked for you to love him. He's only ever asked for you to be devoted to him. He's only ever been after your affections. What does he require except that? The bottom line has always been love and devotion. And this should perhaps begin to subvert and overturn a very common misconception we have about the Old Testament, namely that it's just a bunch of laws, and it's all about keeping rules. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The Old Testament was about exactly the opposite. It was not about keeping rules. It was about the bottom level, comprehensive, all-encompassing love for God. The point was never simply to provide a long list of tedious rules which would be then legalistically kept as though it would earn something from God, but it was rather to say, God wants you to love him, and he's showing you in this law how you should do that. God wants you to love him, and he's showing you in this law how you should do that. It's very similar and should ring a bell in our minds of the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Nothing's changed. Now, what does this devotion to God look like? Moses gives five descriptors in kind of a rapid-fire fashion. Fear, walk, love, serve, and observe. Let's walk through them. Total devotion to God first fears God. Now, this fear is not terrified, servile, submissive fear in that sense. It's not a fear that is terrified, not the fear of judgment, but it is a, it's a sense of awe and respect, a sense of awe and respect that arises because you really value somebody. It's the kind of fear that strikes your heart when you meet your personal hero. Suddenly, the things that you would normally say, you probably don't say. 
and things that you wouldn't say, you probably gravitate towards. You're really careful about what you say and don't say, what you do and don't do. And that's the kind of fear that we're talking about here. Awe, worshipful uh, reverence of God. And, and it's inspired by the dignity of God's person. Total devotion to God also walks in all his ways. That means that devotion lives after a certain pattern. Devotion has a certain path. It follows. It isn't just oozing feelings. It isn't just feeling emotions. It has a definite shape and a pattern of behavior. Walking in the scriptures, walking, rather, is the scripture's master metaphor for daily life. And it pictures decision by decision, step by step, moment by moment choices to walk in his ways. To walk makes a lot of sense. And notice that we do not merely walk in his ways, but we walk in all his ways. Total devotion, therefore, excludes any kind of selectivity in our obedience. We don't get the right to pick and choose what part of God's will we would obey and submit to. We have a responsibility to walk in all his ways. And also notice that they are his ways, not ours. And this should be particularly powerful given the experiences that Israel has just come out of. They have walked in his ways for 40 years in the wilderness, following after the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. They have been walking in his ways for some time. So we walk in his ways when we're totally devoted to him. Third, total devotion loves God. Now, love is not just a feeling. It's a disposition. It's an affection. It's a bent of the soul towards God. It not only says, I feel really emotional about God, but it more deeply and more fundamentally says, I have a deep down commitment to him, an affection for him, a desire for him. It is a settled and directed love that takes place within the bounds of a covenant. It's kind of like marriage. Yes, there is definitely emotion present there, I hope so. And yet at the same time, that emotion is founded upon something that is deeper, more substantive, more continuous. Fourthly, total devotion serves the Lord with its whole being. Because he says, what has the Lord required of you but to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? It serves the Lord your God with all your being. It reaches back into Israel's past in this point, and he borrows language from the Exodus. To serve the Lord your God is to be his slave. Israel was a slave to Egypt, and God has set them free from that slavery to be his slave. To serve him, to accomplish his will. Obedience is service, and when we obey him, we serve him. In other words, when we are totally devoted to God, we view ourselves as nothing more than God's lowly servants, here to do nothing but to do his will. And lastly, total devotion observes the commandments of God. 
to observe or to keep, as the ESV has it, is to attend to the commandments, to pay attention to them, to carefully consider them, to conscientiously put them into practice, to observe them. In other words, devotion is no laissez-faire matter. It's not something that just, well, come as it may, and I'll just do it when it happens. No, it's devotion is intentional and conscientious, and it places the commandments of God in the center of your mind always to look at them and observe them and to see how they could play out right now. And that's what Moses says total devotion is. What more does he require you, of you than that? You might be thinking, what more? <laughs> that's everything. It's basically saying, yeah, I just require, you know, literally everything. And it's really easy to respond to that by saying, well, that's not easy. In fact, that's hard. That's impossible. What more do you require? You've required everything from me. And yet, you talk Moses like this is some kind of light thing, no big deal. And my brothers and sisters, we only feel this way because of our sin, not because of God's law. We feel this way because we see God's law as an onerous, burdensome thing, which is unreasonable, which lays demands upon us which are wrong or too much or inordinate. Paul would comment about this much later. He would say something in Romans chapter 7. Listen to this. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. But there's nothing wrong with it, then why do I find such a difficulty to obey it? Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what, what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The reason why we find God's law and God's demands burdensome is because of us, not because of him. He does not give commandments like man gives commandments. Who gives a commandment and then doesn't lay a finger, doesn't, doesn't lay a finger in order to help. No, he gives commandments which are good and are designed to help us walk in the kinds of lives that we were always intended to live. And that is why Moses adds finally at the end of verse 13 that they are for your good. They're for your good. God's commandments are good for us. And in reality, the law is a gift of God's grace. It is designed to benefit us. It is not some kind of arbitrary imposition that is imposed upon us by an unappeasable God. As though God was trying to lay a burden upon us which we couldn't do. It is instead designed to free us and to benefit us and to guide us into the kind of lives which we're supposed to live for him, again, as Jesus has said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And that's what total devotion is. But if we recall the context, and as we've already discussed, Israel still possesses a problem. They're full of sin. They don't have that. They can't have that, which leads Moses to his next point. And that is the critical requirement of heart circumcision. The critical requirement of heart circumcision in verses 14 through 16. 
Moses knows that Israel will fall short of this goal because their hearts have not yet been changed. Devotion, isn't, devotion to God isn't something that just happens. It's something that comes about because it is created. Something has to change on the inside before devotion on the outside can ever appear to God. You can have all the laws you want. You can have all the knowledge possible. You can have everything in the perfect conditions, and yet without an extreme makeover of the soul, nothing will change. What must change, therefore, is Israel, not just their deeds. The nature of Israel must be made different in order for them to have this kind of devotion. And that is his point here. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your hearts, verse 16. But how does he get there? How does he get there? He starts by showing them the enormity of the grace they have received. The vastness of the grace that they have received from the Lord. The Lord owns everything. Verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens. Some of your translations might say the highest heaven. However far up you want to go, you can keep going and you're still in God's territory. And the earth and all that fills it, you can explore to the deepest parts of the ocean, to the farthest lands that you can travel, and you're still walking on God's earth. And you're still using everything that he owns. It's all his. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. All of creation, no matter where you go, it's all his. And if that's true, we should come to one conclusion. God is a majestic God. He is a, an amazing God. He is massive. And just look up on a clear night at the stars. And be struck with wonder about how massive this universe is. And the one who created it is even bigger. He has, we, we know, and we, there is, and there exists an incredibly powerful God. And fewer things evidence more, this more than his creation. In Isaiah, he says this in chapter 40. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. As we know so well from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. The creation is speaking something about God. And it's that he's massive and he's glorious and he's powerful. Solomon said it best in 1 Kings 8.27. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Yet... Verse 15, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. This God condescends. This God has set his heart in love on this people. This God who owns all of heaven and earth, 
This God who possesses everything and therefore needs nothing, this God has set his heart in love on puny, weak, powerless slaves of Israel. And he has elevated them to a position of incredible privilege and favor. He didn't have to choose them. There was no reason for him to choose them in themselves. It was all of God. God does not take such external considerations into into factor when he chooses his people. Earlier in Deuteronomy, in chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, he says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with his mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The same could be said of us. Paul said exactly the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, even the things that are not, the things that don't exist, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And I really don't want you to miss the intimate language of this text. In verse 15, yet the Lord set his heart in love. Set his heart in love. The word set his heart translates a Hebrew word which means bound or binding. Bound with cords. It's like he lashed himself to Israel, glued himself to Israel, if you can think like that. He, he, he bound himself to Israel in love because he chose them and desired to be in a relation to them. And so his heart moved towards them which, led them, which led him then to seal that bond with unbreakable promises that he made to Abraham. It's very much the same kind of dynamic as how, how a marriage forms. A young man, over time, begins to, begins to know a young woman, and begins to set his heart upon that woman, and begins to love her, and over time he begins to move towards her and determines within himself, this is the woman for me, and then he goes on to pursue her and ends up by binding himself to that woman with a covenant we call marriage. God is pursuing his people and has set his heart in love on them regardless of their own merits. And believer, there are a few things in this world that can warm your heart to God more than contemplating that fact. Fewer things in this world can warm a cold heart than understanding that he chose you. He chose you. You. Why you? Why me? Why not other members of my family? Why not other members of my neighborhood or my country? Why this people? Because he set his heart in love on me. He loved me because he loved me. He loved Israel because he loved Israel. And this ought to be the motivation 
to circumcise their hearts. Israel, you have seen the kind of love that he has given you. You have seen the majestic gift that he has given you in choosing you to be a nation above every other nation, to be in a position of privilege, to bring blessing to the whole world. If he has chosen you, why do you remain stubborn? Why do you remain cold to your God? Why do you remain inordinately um, stubborn and stiff-necked? The only right response when they were to see this was to be repentance, circumcision of the heart, a transformation on the inside that would lead them to be receptive to God's will. Now, we'll say more on that later, but we must continue. When we become receptive, what does that look like? And that's the next point. The key priority of God's justice. The key priority, or you could even say the key pattern of God's justice in verses 19, or sorry, 17 through 19. Not only is total devotion the basic requirement of keeping the law, and not only is circumcision of the heart necessary in order for that to happen, but when circumcision of the heart does happen, it leads us to imitate our God. It leads us to be like him. We could put the principle like this. Devotion begets imitation. Devotion begets imitation. And we understand this instinctively. I call this the fan club principle. We want to be like those we love. I watched my son, and he imitates me already. He imitates me. Why? He loves me. A fan is devoted to a celebrity and so seeks to be like them. Seminarians sound like their, pre- their favorite preacher. Listen to it. It's funny, actually. They sound like their favorite preacher. I hope that's not being evidenced right now. <laughs> Even the other day, I was on my way out the door to go to work, and I passed by uh, Suzanne, and both the kids and the dog were sitting directly on top of her directly on top of her, and I thought to myself, she's got a fan club. (laughs) See, we pattern our behavior after those we love. And so what drives them becomes what drives us. Their commitments become our commitments. The things that they treasure becomes the thing that we treasure. And so the people of God, when they are totally devoted to God, will begin to imitate him. They will begin to do what he says. It should be therefore particularly instructive to us that when Moses articulates this principle, the one attribute of God he appeals to the most is the justice of God. The justice of God. Look at the text. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, that is, he's the highest of all spiritual beings, he's the highest of all human rulers, he is the great, that is the most important. He is the mighty, that is he is the strongest. And he is the awesome, that is the fearsome, the one who instills and strikes fear into all those who come into contact with him, who is not partial, takes no bribe. Out of all of the majestic attributes of God, the one which he singles out is justice. Justice. He is not partial and he takes no bribe. What does it mean to be impartial? We use the term in kind of a sense of, well, I don't really care. I'm impartial. It, it doesn't really matter to me. 
Which restaurant do you want to go to? I'm impartial. Not partial to anyone. But that's not what it means here. What it means is that you have one standard across the board. It means, and it's literally translated as, he doesn't lift up a face. He's not a respecter of faces. He doesn't give favor to one person over another because of something in that person and something that that person can give to him. If you are impartial, you don't change the rules just because you're dealing with somebody that you particularly like or somebody that can give you something on the side because they're powerful or rich or influential or beautiful. And therefore, impartial people, as it says, do not take bribes. They aren't able to be bought because money is not their commitment. God's law is their commitment. Doing what is right is their commitment. And this is what it means that God is impartial. He is no respecter of persons. He does not pay special attention to one person or the other simply because there is something in them which sets them off from the rest. He does not, he he doesn't pick one person because that person can give him something. How absurd would that be? He's He's the strongest. He doesn't need your help. He's the most fearsome. He's the most intimidating. He is the most, uh, he's the greatest. He's the most important. He is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, as we talked about earlier. He is the God who owns heaven and earth and everything in it. What will you give to him? What? Nothing. You can't bribe him because he already has everything. He has no need of what we could give him. And that is why it says that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Nothing evidences this about God more than the fact that he takes care of those who cannot take care of themselves. He takes care of those who cannot take care of themselves. The fatherless, the widow, and the sojourner, the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner were those who were least important in society, who did not have a safety net to fall back onto didn't have anybody to provide for them, no land to live on in farms so that they could eat and live. And God, it says, takes care of them. And that shows us that he is committed to justice because they cannot give anything to him in return. They cannot give anything back to him. And he does this by giving them food and clothing towards his generosity toward them, towards them. Now, this isn't necessarily a call for what we would today call social justice, as we call it. We need to remember that caring for the fatherless and the widow and the sojourner was part of Israel's law. It was part of Israel's law. It was something they were obligated to do, and that was to demonstrate their commitment that they were to act like God. In fact, it says in Exodus 22, uh, verse 21, you shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He goes on, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. You can tell that he takes this very seriously. 
rather than seeing the poor and the powerless as easy targets for personal gain, Israel was to see them as ready opportunities to imitate their God. And lucky Israel, they were sojourners. If God was not this kind of God, where would they be? In Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy, he says in verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, loves the sojourner, gives him food and clothing. In verse 19, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I rescued you. You should therefore imitate me because you have this heart that is uh, yearning to be devoted to me. And yet, how quickly would Israel forget this? And time and time again, you read in the prophets, they did not take care of the widow and the orphan. They abused the sojourner all demonstrating that they had not yet received the kind of heart that they needed to obey the law. Which leads us to the last consideration, very briefly, which is the central person of the sovereign God. In verse 22, verse 20 through 22, the central person is not Israel. It is God. Listen to this more literal translation of these verses. The Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. To him you shall hold fast. By his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Who is at the center of all of this? It is God. God stands at the middle of the story. He is the main character. He is the centerpiece. He is the melody line of this symphony. He is all about, he is the one about whom this is all about. God is the center of it all. So, all of the things which were spoken of back in verses 12 and 13, much of the same language is borrowed here, are reiterated in saying that total devotion, that total devotion that he requires from you, that you would fear him, love him, praise him, serve him, walk in his ways, observe his commandments, all of that, God is the one who makes it happen. He is the one who makes it happen. He has shown you that he is powerful enough to do that. Verse 21, your eyes have seen what he has done for you with these great and terrifying things in the wilderness. You've seen what he can do. He can give you what you cannot create in yourself. Moses is laboring to make very clear that every aspect of their salvation, every facet of their deliverance, every ounce of their redemption proceeds from, is sustained by, and finds its purpose in God and God alone. He is the one who stands at the center of it all. Which means that, yes, even the circumcision of the heart must come from him as well. Turn very quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 30. 
Deuteronomy chapter 30. The most important chapter, I believe, in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 1, And when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And here it is, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's all about God. How is he going to do that? Well, Moses doesn't tell us. He said earlier, just a few verses earlier, the secret things belong to the Lord. But what he didn't know, we know. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Romans 2, 28 and 29, no, Jew, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Philippians 3, 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In a word, God circumcises our hearts on the basis of the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's Communion Sunday this morning, and this is the very reality that we celebrate in this meal. You can even remember the words of institution which Jesus spoke, These, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And that, circum that new covenant is what supplied what was lacking from Israel, the circumcision of the heart, the creation of a heart which would be open and receptive to his will. And it reaches all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and says, what the Lord had promised to Israel, that he would circumcise your hearts, now he has accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. His body was broken on that cross to break the power of sin. And his blood, his life was poured out that we might live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. So in this cup, we should see all that was reflected in this text in Deuteronomy. 
we should see in it and remember that this sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that which enables our total and complete devotion to the Lord. Without that, there would be no love for God. This sacrifice, this cup, remembers that it is the Spirit who has circumcised our heart so that we would no longer be stubborn. In this cup, we see the justice of God who poured out his wrath upon his own Son so that all who believe in him would not perish but be given life. So that he could be just and the justifier of the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should also show us that he is in fact at the center of it all. It's all about him. So as we do eat and as we drink, let's remember these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you most of all for the things which they teach us. Thank you that Christ has come, that he has died, that he has raised again, so that all who believe might have life. And as we celebrate that in this cup and this bread, help us to recall him, to not forget, to never forget, but always to remember that we may live for him for the rest of the time in our flesh. In your name we pray, amen.